right, welcome again to Stonebridge or Makeshift Stonebridge. My name's Matt, good to have you all here this morning. We're going to jump into the book of Judges this morning, starting a new book. Um, excited about that. It's a crazy book. There's some insane stories that you read and you go, wow, that was the Bible? Um, so it's going to be a wild ride. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to show you a little bit about what's happening at the church with the renovation. So last week we showed you what's happening. This is kind of the update. So you'll walk in. Um, we took that classroom out there and it'll be a much bigger foyer space. There's kind of a serving area here built in um, into the kitchen and some double doors. You can go to the next slide. And here's the sanctuary. So if you remember, there's like this little cubby hole here and we just cut that out and moved the whole thing back and put the put the ceiling or the, the wall all the way up um, and it's going to look much more open, concrete floors. It's, it's just going to be cool. It's going to be fun. It's going to allow a lot more space and I think feel a lot less cramped for everybody. So um, excited for that. Now, I wanted to, to uh, get your advice here this morning on how I can ensure that my kids become Iowa State Cyclone fans. Okay, because that's really important, right? So... Um, I, I don't actually want your advice. I'm just going to tell you what you need to do, what I need to do, and what you should do as well. Uh, you, you buy them a bunch of Cyclone swag, right? You got to have the sweatshirts, all that. You, you take them to games. I was really proud, by the way, Brandon, my three-year-old yesterday, wanted to wear his Iowa State hooded sweatshirt all day, even when we were outside. That's what I'm talking about, you know? <laughs> training them up right. But you take them to Iowa State games and you definitely never allow them to go to or watch Hawkeye games. Okay, that's, just, that's how you do it. Um, you watch the games on TV. You talk about new recruits when you get them. Uh, you talk about how horrible it is to be a Hawkeyes fan. You, you get the picture, right? <laughs> there it is. Thing is, if I don't do it other, uh, and other people don't do that either, pretty soon there won't be any Cyclone fans left. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not worthy of an amen. Um, that's later. I'm, I expect that later. Uh, now, here's the thing. They could still rebel, right? And that often happens. And sometimes kids just do that to be uh, antagonistic, right? They could still rebel, but it's a lot less likely if I do all of those things. Now, I was doing college ministry a few years ago. And one guy that I was working with in college ministry said something really profound. He said that this ministry is four years away from being extinct, from not existing. And the same is true with following Jesus, with, with Christians, with Christianity. We are only one generation away from having no followers of Jesus, no followers of God. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Judges. But how did they get there? How does that happen? Well, I want to start by looking at Deuteronomy 6. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, in Deuteronomy, what's happening is that God's giving some warnings and precautions to the nation of Israel. And they're coming from Moses before they're entering this land that God said, he promised that he was going to give to them. And he's, he says he's giving these warnings and these instructions to this new generation. Because what happened is that the generation before them, their moms, their dads, they saw this new land and went, oh man, these people that are living there, they're scary. We don't want to go, we're not doing this, we're out. 
and were grumbling against God. So God judged them for that. And they just wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. And now that generation is gone. This new generation is about to come in. And Moses is given some instruction on behalf of God. And so before we jump into Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 is where we get our children's ministry name, D6. And our desire is that this wouldn't just be a Sunday program for our kids, but rather that all of our families would be talking about what it means to follow Jesus, what it looks like to follow Jesus, everywhere, everywhere we go, not just on Sunday morning. So you'll see that in this passage, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you see that? Everywhere you go, you're talking about it. Verse eight, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall become as frontlets between your eyes. You you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full. So, time out. Right here he shifts. Starting in verse 12, he shifts to specific warnings that really are for their good. So verse 12, he says, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, or the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Moses knows here that when life is good, people tend to get lazy and lax in following God. He says here in verse 12, you you have to be vigilant to not forget God. Verse 14, you have to be vigilant to not go after other gods. Isn't that true for us as well, right? When God is blessing us with things that we don't deserve, which he is all the time, Even in our worst moments, God is blessing us with things we don't deserve. That's when we are most prone to forget God and wander away from him. But of course, they did become lax and didn't heed God's warning. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. So if you want to turn a few pages over to Judges, um, I'm using the English Standard Version, ESV, by the way. Judges 1 is basically a a historical ending of the time of Joshua. So the book before Joshua is all about them taking over this land that God promised them. And things seem to be going awesome. And chapter 1 just kind of finishes that out. But then in chapter 2, God's people just fall apart. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, and this is the key text that I want to focus on this morning. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Okay, how does a whole stinking generation 
not know God. How does that happen? That doesn't just happen overnight, right? That had to have been a slow process. So how did they get to that point? It's kind of abrupt as you read chapter two. It's just boom. Next generation didn't know God. Well, let's move back a little bit. Let's start with chapter two, verse one. This is why the next generation didn't know God. It's first because they forgot God's grace. Verse one, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Don't just skip over this verse. God is being very intentional with his words here. He's highlighting his grace. He's highlighting the undeserved history of Israel. He says, I brought you up from Egypt. I delivered you from slavery. He saved them. He gave them this land that he promised. He blessed them. He committed himself to them, it says. I will never break my covenant with you. He committed himself to them, starting with Abraham in Genesis 17, reaffirmed by Moses, or to Moses. And he makes this everlasting covenant. I will never break my covenant with you. He saves them. He blesses them. He assures them. How could they forget that? Because in 2 verse 10, nine verses later, the next generation didn't know God. What does that mean that they didn't know God? Well, this word know doesn't mean that they didn't know him intellectually. They knew about God. But they didn't know God relationally. They didn't know God personally. This generation passed on facts, but not relationship. They treated God's saving, blessing, and assurance as a past thing, not a past, present, and future thing. That's fun. Sorry, I couldn't help I'm sorry. Couldn't help but, but notice that. So here's what they were saying, essentially. They were saying, the same God who saved us in Egypt, or I'm sorry, here's what they should have been saying day in and day out. The same God who saved us in Egypt saves us today. The same God who blessed us with this land is blessing us today. The same God who assured us with his eternal promise assures us today. But instead, they developed what I, I call spiritual amnesia. They forgot God's gracious, undeserved gifts. And the same happens with you and I, right? We need to remind ourselves that the same God who saved us, the same God who saved you is with you to save you and to rescue you today as you walk through your day. The same God who blessed you by making you a son or a daughter of God if you believed in him will provide for your needs today, for your physical needs The same God who assures us that we are his forever, nothing can separate us from his great love, is assuring us today as I walk through this hard conversation. Why would they trust God? Why would we trust God with our eternity but not with our present? That doesn't really make sense. If we're trusting God with our eternity, how much more should we be trusting him with our right now? The next generation didn't know God because they forgot how amazing God's amazing grace really is. Second reason they didn't know God. Chapter two, verse two, half obedience. 
You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So I want to rewind to chapter one now. I thought all was good in chapter one. Well, not quite. Look at one, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Go down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse, or I'll keep going. Did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. It goes on and on. Are you getting the repetition here? They did partially what God wanted them to. They took this land, great, but they also were supposed to drive out the inhabitants. And they didn't do it. They did the fun part, but not the hard part. They didn't kick out the corrupt, evil people as they were commanded. Now let's just take a time out here. This is really hard for us to hear and to read because you're saying that God wanted to drive them out and in some instances kill those people. Aren't they innocent people? Why would God do that? Well, I have a quote from, from J.D. Greer, who's a pastor. He says this, in Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 18, God made clear to Israel that he was driving the Canaanites out because of their excessive wickedness. Israel was his instrument of judgment. These were not innocent people Israel was stealing land from. They were cruel and wicked people that God was bringing judgment upon. And Israel was his instrument in doing so. You see, these weren't innocent people. These were excessively wicked people. And God was using the Israelites as his instrument to judge them. Now we're going to talk more about the justice of God and the judgment of God in a little bit. But the point here is that the Israelites, God's people, obeyed only when it was convenient and fun, and they disobeyed when it was inconvenient and difficult. Now, anyone who's ever been on a farm, worked on a farm, I think will get this. So let's say your dad tells you to go into the barn and move a pile of, let's say, hay from this side to that side. Now you got a skid steer and you got, you got a, what do you call that, fork? I'm sorry, thank you, pitch, it's just a pitchfork, straight up, okay. All I can think of is devil when I say pitchfork, but here, you know, here we go. So you got the pitchfork and you got the skid steer. What are you gonna start with? You're gonna start with skid steer because it's more efficient, but also because it's way more fun and way less work, am I right? So you come over here, you're going for it. Now you can't get all of that hay with the skid steer. You're gonna need to use the pitchfork, okay? Kevin, you can correct me later if any of this is just totally off. Um, but my, your dad would probably be pretty mad at you if you decided just to leave 
uh, the bit you couldn't get with the skid loader. See, that's the hard part. And that's what we often do too. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? That's what the Israelites were doing. But isn't that us? We love God's blessing, but often stiff arm his hard commands. Sure, I love it when other people encourage me and serve me and love me, but I don't, I don't really have time to love them. H- have you met my neighbor? D- did you grow up with my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister? You, you don't know them. How am I supposed to love them? Sure, I love encountering God at church and at conferences and at Christian concerts and big events, but I don't have time to read my Bible every day. Praying daily is exhausting. Isn't this us? Half obedience, doing the fun stuff. But when God commands something difficult of us, we just say, no thanks. That's why the next generation forgot God. Half obedience, half-heartedness. Third reason, chapter two, verse three. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. Third reason is idolatry. What started as just allowing them and allowing their gods to be with them quickly turned into full-blown idolatry. It was funny. I, I went to Shane this week and I'm like, Okay, I know this saying, it's, um, help me out, Shane, uh, something about how other people influence you, and then I was like, bad company corrupts good morals, thanks, Shane, uh, and then I go and type it into Google, and I'm like, I wonder who said that, it's 1 Corinthians 15, <laughs> verse 33, we just got done with 1 Corinthians, so uh, I'm really paying attention here, um, but that's what was happening. They were allowing this bad company to corrupt them. But what was so attractive about these idols? Well, their main god was Baal, and he was the god of fertility and nature. Now, part of Baal worship was ceremonial prostitution to encourage Baal to make it rain. And in, in an agrarian culture, crops and livestock were everything. So you needed rain. Your livelihood depended on it. So imagine this conversation between an Israelite and a Canaanite Baal worshiper. Okay, I'm the Canaanite. I'm going, hey, you know what? That's cool that God saved you from from Egypt and provided you this land. That's awesome. That's great that your God did that. But here's the thing. You got to provide for your family and it's not raining. We're in a drought. So why don't you just come on up to the, to the temple with me tonight. Grab, grab your boys. We'll go up to the temple and um, we'll just have a little crop insurance. You see how attractive that would be? Pretty soon they're hooked on Baal worship. And the next generation has no desire for God. Where are you turning to supplement God in your life? That's what they were doing. They were trusting him with their crops, with their livelihood. So they were turning to Baal. Where do you turn for supplemental joy, hope, 
satisfaction, approval, intimacy. Maybe it's certain people, family, friends, your boss. This quote by Ed Welch from, from a book I've been reading lately, When People Are Big and God Is Small, that I'd highly recommend. He says, when we think of idols, we usually think first of Baal and other material man-made creations. Next, we might think of money. We rarely picture our spouse, our children, or a friend from school, but people are our idol of choice. That's true of all of us. When we talk about idolatry, we can stop right there with people. We just sang in this song. It hit me while we were singing it. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. You know what that means? I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up a few years ago. I dare not, the sweetest frame. I dare not trust the most beautiful, best person. Frame is just a person. Are you turning to other people for supplemental joy and satisfaction? Maybe you're turning to certain activities, exercise, social media. Maybe it's certain substances, food, drugs. See, training the next generation is as much about what's caught as is what's taught. The next generation of Israelites caught that God was not enough. The next generation in your family and this church family needs to see, not just here, that God is enough. Not Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. That Jesus is enough. Fourth reason the next generation didn't know God. Temporary repentance. Verses four and five, two, four and five. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of that place Bacham and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now you might be saying, great, they repented. Why is that a reason why the next generation didn't know God? Well, don't you remember? By verse 10, a whole generation doesn't know God. So I believe that their repentance was genuine. They were crying, they were... They, they were definitely distraught over their sin. But it didn't last. It was superficial. I was reading about a pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who lived in Wales, was a pastor in, in Wales over in Great Britain. He was, he was charged with encouraging too much emotionalism in his church. And he responded like this. He said, it's very easy to make a Welsh man cry but it, needs an, it takes an earthquake to make him change his mind. See, repentance means changing your mind, which leads to changing your actions. It's not enough just to be distraught over it. It's good. We actually need to do that. We need to be emotional about our sin and our idols and our shortcomings and bring that to the feet of Jesus. But it's less about our initial sorrow over our sin on Sunday and more about our turning from sin Monday through Saturday. So now we see God's gracious response. And here I'm just going to give you an overview of the whole book of Judges. And this will just kind of outline where we're going. So let's start in verse 11. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the first part of this cycle that happens in Judges is that Israel forgets God's grace with half obedience and idolatry. They fell into the same traps that the previous generation did. Spiritual amnesia, forgetting God's grace. Half obedience, idolatry. And then the second part of this, God judges them, verse 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Why does God judge them? Why does he not just forgive them and go, no big deal? Several reasons. I'll give you a few. A loving parent disciplines his kids. Amen, parents? Right? A loving, wow, a kid said that. Remember that, whoever's parents, those are. A loving parent disciplines their kids. We see that in Hebrews 12 in regards to God with his children. He loves us way too much to leave us where we're at. So when he sees them going after idols, he doesn't just go, ah, no big deal, I forgive you. Nothing would have changed. They needed to be disciplined in love. Another reason that God enacts judgment is simply this. Who are we to tell God what is just? God is the standard of justice. He's the all-knowing, all-wise judge who defines justice. So who are we to say that he's wrong to do so? Another reason, this is a quote from a student out at Hidden Acres, uh, Ryan Graydon, when we were talking about this as elders, uh, got this. I'm sure it's not original to him, but what you permit is what you promote. What you permit is what you promote. See, God's not about to promote idolatry within his chosen people. God doesn't allow his people to misrepresent him very long without correcting them. And that is true today as well. But the biggest reason I think that God enacts justice is to lead them to repentance. Look at verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. I wanna talk about that word groaning. It says God was moved to pity because they were groaning. They're, this is the same word that was used to describe the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt. They were groaning, crying out to God. There's nothing especially humble or repentant about this groaning. They were, it, it's more of like a frustration with God. God, why? God, where are you? When all along it was their fault, right? 
They're angry at God. And they're unjustly angry at God. But they're crying out to him. And just because of that cry, God swoops in because of his incredible grace. They didn't deserve this. But he's responding even to their selfish groans to him. What undeserved mercy. What undeserved grace. And we can learn from this that it is better to cry out to God when we're frustrated with him and in pain than to not cry out to him at all. He turns his ear even to our our weak, messed up cries. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. So, this cycle, Israel forgets God. God judges them. Israel repents. And then God saves them through judges. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. This is where we get the title for this series, Broken Saviors. God raises up these men and women who often are just really messed up people and increasingly messed up as you go through the book of Judges and uses them to save them. And then the cycle repeats. Look at verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Verse verse 19, but whenever the judge died, They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So take a look at this picture. This is a good representation of what's happening. See, they they would just tank and go after idols, be half hearted. And then they would cry out to God, and God would save them, and they repented. But then it would happen again, even worse and worse and worse and worse. Leaves, leaves us pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Thankfully, here in 2018, that's not where the story ends. Jesus breaks this cycle and enables us to have true repentance through his work on the cross. Acts 5, 30 and 31 The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I love that. Jesus comes and, you know, because they continue to just have these cycles. It's not just the book of Judges. Okay, all the kings after that were messed up. Because we're sinful. We're messed up people. On our own, we say, yeah, oh God, I'm so sorry for that. I'm not gonna walk in that anymore. And then we just turn our back on him and do something else. That's why we need a savior. Jesus steps in, dies for our sins, raises from the dead to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer this cycle and gives repentance. I love it because it says in verse 31 of Acts 5, gives repentance to Israel to this nation that he chose. 
and forgiveness of sins, true repentance that lasts. Jesus empowers us with his Holy Spirit to have victory over grace amnesia, to have victory over half obedience, to have victory over idolatry. We're not helpless anymore. And then in Judges 2, at the end of the chapter, 21 and 22, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. That's the question for us in 2018. Will we take care to walk in the way of the Lord or not? The next generation depends on our willingness to walk in the way of the Lord. So parents, do your kids know how beautiful and great God is because of you? Do they see that in your priorities? Do they see that in the way you structure your life? Do they, if we were just to evaluate, if we were just to evaluate you based on the activities that you have your kids involved in, what would your kids say is more important? Their future success or walking with God? Their involvement in sports, dance, other extracurriculars, or walking with God? The amount of fun they have or walking with God? What would they say is more valuable to you? What would they say that you desire for them most? And it's not just something you can talk about. It's something that's caught and more effective when it's caught. So this isn't just to parents, everyone in here. Our willingness to reject grace amnesia, to be thankful, to talk about God's good gifts and blessings will affect whether the next generation knows God or not. Our willingness to reject half obedience, to not stiff arm God's hard commands will affect whether the next generation knows God or not. Our willingness to reject idols especially the, idol, the idolatry of people, will affect in a huge way whether the next generation knows God. The next generation not only needs to hear from us that God is enough, that God is enough they need to see in all of us that God truly is enough. Let's pray. God, this is heavy. This is difficult. We don't want to go the way of the, the Israelites during the time of the judges, God. We want to be an incredible example for the next generation. And I thank you that that is possible because of Jesus. So I pray that this week you would just wake us up to things in our lives, ways in our lives that we're communicating to others that you are not enough. I pray that you would convince us more and more that you are enough, day in and day out, moment by moment, through trial and tragedy, through ups and downs. God, you are enough. Forgive us for not trusting you. 
Help us not to trust the sweetest frame, the best things, the best people, but to trust wholly in Jesus' name. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.